I'm assuming we're a person short. So I'm Charlie and I'm doing the Bible reading. <laughs> Just amuse yourselves for the moment. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, if you wanted to turn to it. So uh, it's Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll be reading uh, verses 1 to 14. So Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 14, and uh, we read from the NIV to 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be, might be for the praise of his glory." And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his word. Well, as you're possibly aware by now, we can commencing a new series uh, in Ephesians and uh, we'll be running that for seven weeks. It's going to end up being quite a condensed series. There were things we skip over again uh, because there's no possible way that we can cover Ephesians in seven weeks. And again, even in this first chapter, uh, there's possibly a substantial amount that we're just going to skim over uh, simply because there is so much that we could cover. And it was interesting, uh, I was speaking to Pastor Darrell because he brought the message this morning and I said, man, I said, what did you do with this message there is just so much to cover he goes yes it's a bit like dissecting an animal when you first get it it looks quite good and then you cut it open it's like you so and what he meant was there's just so much to deal with so much that's contained there so again I want to encourage you to go home and read this dig into it uh, learn from God yourselves there is so much he can teach you there but uh, as we begin this I want you to think about Paul's physical situation what he's actually doing at the time of writing this particular book to the Ephesians church he's in prisoned in Rome and he's been in prison because he's been proclaiming the gospel and so he's been persecuted and thrown in jail and he just doesn't see that as an issue he doesn't see that as a problem he sees it as some as just an opportunity to proclaim the gospel and to encourage the brethren through writing letters to them. Could, could you imagine, in that day and age, when there was imprisonment like this, there was a guard who was chained to the prisoner. 
Could you imagine being that guard? This guy is just so in love with Jesus. He's so impassioned by the life that he has in him. He would just be constantly talking about Jesus. Could you imagine standing there while this guy just constantly went on about Jesus? And then everyone that came in to visit Paul, Paul would just tell them about Jesus as well and encourage them in the faith and build them up in the faith. I mean, it's a miracle. And this is why there were so many who became Christians, I suppose. It's a miracle that there weren't more guards who came to faith because so many of them did as a result of Paul being imprisoned. And he may be imprisoned, but he doesn't allow his outward circumstances to dictate the reality of his life. And he lives a life in Christ. That's how Paul sees it. And that's what tonight's message is going to focus on, what it means to be in Christ. When we read this letter of Paul's there's this excitement this enthusiasm this exuberance if you like where Paul begins to talk about Jesus and he has this passion and richness of understanding of the grace of God and that grace that God pours out upon each and every one of us and Paul has experienced this and it drives him to speak about this consistently and he wants to constantly worship and praise God the God who has lavished such blessings upon him and not just upon him but upon all believers and this is a God who's giving us every spiritual blessing that is available. Not some of them. He's given each and every believer every spiritual blessing that is available. And Paul doesn't see this as being unique to him. Paul doesn't see himself as being any different to other believers. But he sees this as something that is available to all. Something that each and every believer can have. Those who've called upon Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. And so as Paul writes this letter, he's writing to the Ephesians and he wants the Ephesians to realise that they can have the same experience that he has had. They can come into the same place of worship that he has worshipped. They can worship just like he has worshipped. And we can change our attitudes. They can change their attitudes from, for every challenge that they face, every trial, to not see them as a burden, to not see them as a problem, to, but to see them as an opportunity of God's grace to be manifested in that particular situation. And Paul embraces that. He sees every trial as a God-given opportunity. And it comes through his focus on the wonderful grace of God and everything that God has done in Christ. And so tonight... I just want us to think about our lives, your life. Think about why you come to church. Think about how you'd answer the question, what makes you a Christian? As we move through this passage tonight, you'll see that our salvation is achieved by being in Christ. And in order to understand all that that means, we have to hold fast to sound doctrine. We have to hold fast to truth. But in order to hold fast to good doctrine and truth, we've got to know it. We've got to read it. We've got to engage with it. And it's not someone's opinion. It's not what I say from the front. It's not even what Pastor Darrell says from the front. You should check everything we say against God's word. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking about Jesus. And so we must engage with this Word. We must know this Word. And no matter which way you look at what this is all about, it's all about Jesus. And so we need to know 
Jesus Christ more. We need to know the word more each and every day. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much that we can be gathered in this place once more. I thank you for your love, your grace that you pour out upon us. I thank you, Lord, for the challenge that was found in your word. Oh, Lord, let us just hear from you tonight. Let us engage with you. Let us put aside anything that would prevent us from hearing from you and seeing your presence here this evening, Lord. Touch someone's life tonight, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our primary focus this evening is going to be on one sentence. And that one sentence is verses 3 through to 14 in the original text. And it's insane. Could you imagine the poor guy who's scribing this for Paul? And here he is sitting down trying to write this. And this is a sentence that becomes increasingly descriptive of God's work in Christ. Every new thought presents an explanation of the incredible work that God has done. And it's cascading and there's one thought upon another. And Paul is just so enthusiastic about this. I can imagine him speaking faster than what I speak. And uh, the guy who's trying to write it down may be even frustrated in trying to catch up to him. And Paul's frustrated because he hasn't got the words to express what he's trying to say, how rich and great the grace that God has provided for us is. And he writes to stir the Ephesians up. He writes to spur them on in the faith. And he wants us to be spurred up in that faith as well. And he wants us to have a lifelong constant response of praise and worship to God for the grace that he's shown in Christ. And we're only going to scratch the surface. We're not even really going to touch this. But first and foremost, we know that God has blessed us. I think every believer here will say this is true. I don't think there's anyone who doesn't believe this. But what Paul is driving, what he wants us to do is to understand what that blessing is and how that blessing only comes in Christ. And those two words, in Christ, are hugely significant in the New Testament. You've heard both Pastor Darrell and myself say, if there's words repeated in the Bible, you need to pay attention. They're there for a very specific reason. They're there so you pay attention to what they're being said. And that term, in Christ, if you look for that term alone, in Christ, that exact phrase is repeated 91 times in the New Testament. 91 times. And there's a whole heap of others that are translated from the same word, which I didn't actually get into. But 13 times in the book of Ephesians, we see that one term, in Christ. But if you look at the original text and you look for the original word that was actually translated uh, in Christ, we find a very different thing because it's translated a few different ways so it flows better in the English. And so in verse 1 of this particular passage we've had read this evening, verse 1, it says, in Christ. Verse 3, it says, in Christ. Verse 4, it says, in him. Verse 5 says, through Christ Jesus. Verse 6 says, in the beloved. Verse 7 says, in him. Verse 9 says, in Christ. Verse 10 says, in him. Verse 11, in him. Verse 12, in Christ. Verse 13, in him. When something's repeated, we need to pay attention. I don't think this guy could have repeated this any more in this one sentence and made it any clearer what he wants us to focus on. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, we don't just get him as Lord and Saviour, although he is that. Don't hear me saying anything different. He is that. But we're put in Christ. 
And it's a term that indicates that everything he has is mine. We are united with him. We are joint heirs with him. And there is so much more. And we're going to touch on some of that. But it's an incredible position for us to be. And Paul writes in verse 1, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And after that greeting, verse 1 and 2 are greetings. After that greeting, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I want you to note the last bit of this verse. We have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's past tense. It's already happened. When you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing that there is. And when we think about this, being blessed in Christ is about receiving joy. It's about every joy. It's about every benefit. It's about everything that your heart and soul would long for. Is that true of me? Is it true of you? Can you say that you have received every spiritual blessing and you've experienced that in your life? It would seem in my observation anyway, I don't have the spiritual wealth that Paul is talking of. I don't think many of us do. I've seen some who have. And they're just people you just love being around. It's just like Holy Spirit is just glowing out of them. They're amazing people. And so many of us, me included, live in spiritual impotence. So many times we're unable to grow, unable to gain the confidence to speak about Jesus, unable to overcome the sins that so easily entangle us. Paul tells us we have a wealth of blessing. We have every spiritual blessing. And yet so many of us are spiritual paupers, living in defeat rather than victory. And it's all because we're ignorant of our wealth. We're ignorant of what we've been given. We may say we know Jesus. We may say we are Christian. We may say we're followers of Jesus. But is it evident? Are we able to rise above our circumstances? So if we're in prison, just like Paul was in prison, we would see opportunities and victories and hold fast to God's promises without ever wavering, trusting that he's got this in hand. If you are a true follower of Jesus, then you already have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And note, they're in the heavenly places. This is not material possessions. This is not stuff of the world. It's other stuff. Don't hear me saying God will never bless you with material possessions. He does. But that's not a blanket covering. I don't believe in prosperity at all. Come to faith, you get wealthy. That doesn't happen. Not for everyone. For some people it does. But this is in the heavenly places. So we don't necessarily receive material wealth while here on earth. But this is heavenly. And so because our, our 
blessings are in the heavenly places, we should have this fundamental shift from that of the world to that of glory, to that of heaven, to that which we will receive on that day when we meet our Lord in glory. And it's all a part of God's plan. And we're told that he predestined us. This opens up a can of worms, doesn't it? Yep, okay. So can we just flick the page? Cool, let's keep going. Uh, to be honest, I don't want to get bogged down in this argument this evening. So I just want to look at what this, actually, this verse actually says. So um, in Ephesians 4 and 5, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. From this, it's clear that God chooses or elects us, whatever that means. But it's something that we don't really get our heads around. We can go for an interpretation from this verse and find another verse that seems to contradict what we'll interpret this verse to mean. And there's some verses where we could take a particular stand and then there's other verses that will contradict that. So why fight about it? Let's just say, hey, I don't fully understand this, but what I do know, what I do know is that God has been active. God has been looking down through eternity and God has seen me and God has seen you and he has been aware of us long before we were aware of him and he knew you and he loved you and he drew you to himself. However that works. And... In this verse, that's called predestination. Your salvation is initiated by God. You didn't do it. He pursued you. And he just revealed himself to you. Pastor Darrell said this morning, even if you go with the elect, the elect would agree Sinners do not miss out on heaven because they weren't part of the elect. Sinners miss out on heaven because they didn't accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. Full stop. Jesus died once and for all. There is the free offer of salvation to each and every sinner. Each and every sinner. He chose us the believers, in order that we may be holy and blameless before him. And I may be on my own, but I ain't holy and blameless. I don't know about you. I'm not holy and blameless like Jesus was anyway. But if I don't think I'm holy and blameless, maybe that's my problem. When we go to Romans 6.4... It says that we, believers, were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6.3 tells us that we've been baptised into his death, and this tells us that we have been buried with him, that we've been raised with Christ when he was raised from the dead. Jesus died to pay the price for our sins. And we are united with him in that death. And so it's like our sins, the price for our individual sins has been paid for because of that unity with Christ in his death. Sin came into the world through one man. Salvation came into the world through one man, Jesus Christ. 
Sin caused all of us to fall. One righteous man potentially could cause all of us to be saved. All we have to do is choose him. Jesus died to pay the price for our sins. And because we're united with him, the price for our sins have been paid. Jesus' resurrection was his triumph. His triumph over the punishment of sin. His triumph over death. And that triumph, my friends, is ours as well. Death should no longer hold great fear for us. Death is that veil which we walk through into his presence and his glory. Christ's triumph in his resurrection is our triumph as well. We will be resurrected. We will be with him. But for now, we have this new life that we've been raised to. And when we think about this, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And I don't think we get this either. I'm not sure if you've thought about the adoption process, but from an earthly, worldly, human perspective, when someone is adopted into a family, all the rights all the privileges, all the benefits of a legitimate child then becomes theirs. They are not any different to a biological child of those families. Once they are adopted, they gain everything that that family has to offer. But conversely, they lose all their rights to their previous family. There's no longer a claim on them by their former mother and father. And they have no rights. Think about us when we're adopted into God's family. We put to death our old selves. We're not going to let that rule over us any longer. It has no right and no authority of us over us because we are children of the Most High God. And we receive all the rights and benefits that God has to offer us. And Satan no longer has a claim where he once did before. Legally speaking, they are a new person. Any debts, any obligations that that person had before they were adopted into the new family are gone. They can never be brought up and raised against them again. And that's the same in our standing before God. The only big difference in this scenario is most people adopt cute kids, hey? God even adopted me. Not a word, Callie. He gives us all the rights and privileges that Jesus has. He accepts us and he redeems us. Each and every one of us who believe have been redeemed from the guilt and power of sin. Is that your experience? Can you claim that? Do you believe that? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In the New Testament there are three different original words that are translated or understood to mean redemption. And all of them are relevant. In uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, it tells us that our body is the temple of Holy Spirit, for we have been bought with a price. And that's the word redeemed that is, is, is mentioned there. 
And that particular word uh, means that we've been bought like from the marketplace. There's an item that it has a set price and that has been paid for. That's what that particular redeemed means. In Galatians 3.13, it tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And this is still a marketplace purchase, but uh, it's a little bit different. We've been bought out of the marketplace. It's like a ransom has been paid. There's, there's an agreed to price that needed to be paid, and that has been paid. But the redemption mentioned here is different. This redemption stands alone. It, it, it's a powerful, powerful word. This redemption represents a payment to free a slave, but not just to free a slave. It's a payment that ensures that slave will never be enslaved again. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that powerful? And that's what Jesus Christ did for us. Never to be enslaved again. I am no longer a slave to sin. It will not have dominion over me. Not any sin. Not any other master. Do we get that? I say that I do, but do I? Do I really understand how incredible this is? Jesus Christ purchased us, purchased us, delivering us, setting us completely free from the penalty and power of sin. If I got that, and if you got that, we'd be like Paul and we'd shout triumphantly, just as he does here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Sin has no power over us. We have been redeemed and we have been forgiven. Our sins will be remembered no more. Psalm 103.12 tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our sins from us. All of them, not just some of them, not just most of them, all of them. Doesn't matter what it is. Gone. We just come to him, we confess. And they're remembered no more by the one who really matters. There's another guy though. He's going to remind you, hey. Because he doesn't want you to live in victory. He doesn't want you to live in freedom. He wants to tie you down again. And Satan and his hordes are going to whisper in your ear. You're not free. There's no way you can get away from this. You are a sinner. How could God possibly love you? Or something similar. He wants to tie you up in that again. He doesn't want us to believe this truth. He doesn't want us to claim it. Satan is an enemy of God and he's going to be an enemy of God's servants as well. That's you and me. He wants to keep us entangled in doubt. He wants to make us believe we can never be forgiven, never be free. But our freedom is Christ is emphasised again and again throughout Scripture. And what does John 8.36 say? If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's Jesus. I choose to believe it. We are free in Christ. We live and fight our battles with this reality. And when we understand this and claim it as a reality of ourselves, we will experience true freedom. 
In John 8.32, Jesus says that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. And when we are free, we will be free indeed. The finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross broke the power of sin in us. And the understanding this, focusing on this absolute truth, are we able to overcome sin? Are we able to overcome addictions? Are we able to overcome strongholds in our lives? Jesus broke the chains of sin in his finished work on the cross. And God, in his love and grace, has made known to us the mystery. God chose to reveal Jesus to us. The mystery that is spoken of is God's hidden divine plan. And he's revealed that to us now. He's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. The mystery in context is Jesus, and more than that, it is the plan that is revealed through him. And when we get to Ephesians 3, we'll see that the mystery of the gospel that is revealed is that Gentiles are included in God's divine plan on equal footing with the Jews. That was mind-blowing for the Jews at the time. It has always been God's plan to unite all things to himself. And Ephesians 1.10 says, As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And we get a glimpse of that unity today. This points forward to a time when Jesus will not only be the head of the church, but all things will acknowledge his headship. All will bow to him, all of creation, and acknowledge him as Lord and Saviour. And we see a glimpse today. Throughout all of creation, there's disunity at the moment, but it won't always be that way. There'll be a day when all things are united under the headship of Christ. All dissension, all disunity will be no more. And that, perhaps that's why he calls us to unity here. It's what we have to strive for. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, I appeal to you, brothers, sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And I believe we should do all we can to bring unity to us as a people of God. We should do all we can to ensure that we are united and loving each other. None of us are better than another. None of us have an exclusive claim on Jesus or heaven. Each and every person who has eternal life came into that position through Christ alone, through being drawn by God. I want to read to you too from Colossians. It's just so amazing. Colossians chapter 2, verses um, 8 to 15. This was part of my quiet time this week as I was preparing this message. Just listen to these words. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them it's an incredible power of 
passage of scripture, isn't it? I hope, I hope you understand what was contained there is basically a summary of what we've looked at this evening. In Ephesians 1.3, it tells us we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, absolutely everything. And then Colossians 2.9 and 10 tells us that the fullness of deity dwelt in Christ and we've been filled in him the same way. Ephesians 1.7 tells us we've been redeemed by his blood and our trespasses have been forgiven. Colossians 2.11 and 12 tells us that our trespasses have been forgiven and the record of our debt has been cancelled. He set it aside by nailing it to the cross. It's been dealt with once and for all. And his work and his actions disarmed the evil rulers and authorities. They were not expecting it. And so he triumphs because, and because he triumphs, we triumph. He has victory over those powers and principalities. And both Ephesians and Colossians speak about the new life we have when we've been raised in Christ by the powerful work of God. This is our God. This is what he's done for you. This is what he's done for me. Who or what can possibly stand against us? Where are you tonight? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour? If not, why not? It's a simple decision to make. And if that's you, why not make that decision tonight? Why not bring that change into your life? I'd love to talk to you. And I'm sure there's Christian men and women around you, Christian friends around you who'd love to. Perhaps you've not experienced true freedom from the bondage of sin. Perhaps you are finding it hard to believe that God can forgive you. But it's clear in these passages we've looked at tonight that he does. And he remembers your sin no more. It's gone, finished. And this has been a struggle for you. I ask you to come forward, just allow us to pray for you tonight. I'd just love to pray with you and sort through that with you. I just want to take some time to pray now, then we'll close the service. There are some question sheets here, as I suppose is becoming a tradition for me, so please feel free to come and grab those and do them at home or do them here tonight. But I just want to pause and pray, and I just ask that we quietly think about what we've heard this evening. Father, it's a complex message that came out of your word tonight. I'm not sure if I've given it. I've done it justice. But Lord, this is, this is your space. This is a time for you to work amongst us by Holy Spirit. And Lord, I ask you to do your thing. I pray, Lord, by power of Holy Spirit, that you'll convict where conviction's required. I pray, Lord, if there's people here who are yet to know you, that they'll have no doubt of the reality of you and that they'll respond to that this evening. Father, there's people here who are struggling with forgiveness. I pray, Lord, that you will allow them to know that all they have to do is ask and you'll remove that sin from them.
and you will remember it no more. Please, Lord, give them a confidence in that by power of Holy Spirit. Lord, for us as a people, we don't manifest all of your heavenly gifts here at SDBC. I pray you'll forgive us if we haven't believed that you could. And I pray again, Lord, by power of Holy Spirit, that those gifts will be manifested in this place and that we'll see a mighty work commence. Lord, you've blessed us with every heavenly gift. We are not lacking. We just pour in spirit. So, Lord, move amongst us as only you can. Raise up the leaders of tomorrow. Raise up those who will become powerful witnesses for you, Lord. And Lord, just give us a confidence in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I trust the Lord will bless you. I trust he'll keep you. I trust he'll go with you and before you this week. I trust that you know his presence and power. And if he's spoken to you tonight, I'd love to hear what he said. So please come forward, have a chat. Otherwise, the notes are here. Speak to someone, talk to them about Jesus and what he said to you tonight and uh, have a great week. God bless one and all. Thank you.